was a joy to sing together. Psalm 119 in verses 113 through 120 tonight, we will be looking at this next stanza in uh, a chapter that we have borrowed the title, The Mount Everest of the Bible. And we just read through uh, this stanza and the Hebrew letter that forms the acrostic for this stanza is uh, Samek. And I, again, don't know if I'm pronouncing that uh, correctly, probably not according to the Hebrew, but that would be the Hebrew letter that is the first letter of each verse of this stanza in the acrostic in this uh, great chapter, uh, Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. We will look first of all at the fact that we need to guard our thoughts with the Word of God. We look at verse 113 and we see the psalmist saying, I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. We see the contrast, we see in the Hebrew poetry, often comparison, contrast, rhyming of ideas, rhyming of principles. We see that here in the form of a contrast. I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. And I know that the word hate today is used in a different context. Hate today is used to speak of those who hold to biblical truth. Hate today is used toward those who stand for the word of God. Hate speech is now being used to describe the very words of God the very truths of Scripture, the very moral law that God has established and declared in His Word. We don't know if it's going to come to the United States, but we know that there is, I believe it's in Finland, a particular diplomat who has been under trial for the second time simply for posting Bible verses on her social media account. And it's not too far removed. I'm not trying to be a doomsdayer or a naysayer. But we're not too far removed from us here in America being called haters or our posting of Bible verses on social media from being considered hate speech. And uh, we are thankful for some First Amendment protections. But we know that it is truly the vain thoughts, sin, that is what we should hate because God hates sin. I know that it is difficult for us to consider a sinner who commits sins. Even Proverbs refers to sins that are an abomination. Six that God hates, yea, seven are an abomination. And so those are particular sins that sometimes are then described as deadly sins. They have a particular consequential aspect to their uh, sinfulness, and so we refer to them in a, maybe a special category as sins that are an abomination to God. So if the scriptures declare certain sins as abominable, does that not speak to the way, the, 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 the fact that those sins are particularly evil, that God has a holiness and a holy hatred for that which is evil, for that which is sinful? Wouldn't it do us a lot of good to have the heart of the psalmist and to have the view of sin the way God sees it? I hate vain thoughts. 
It would do us a lot of good to have a hatred for that which God hates, to despise what God despises. Too often it's in our culture and we can get caught up in it. Too often it's the opposite. I love vain thoughts, but thy law do I hate. We may never say that. Oh, that would be never, that would never come out of our lips. But what about in our practical living? Do we show by our priorities? Do we show by our values, by the way we live, that we hate God's law, we despise God's law, and we love the vain thoughts more than we love God's law? We show by our life that we have a hatred or a despising for that which is holy and that which is good. Now, a person who characterizes their life by that is more than likely unsaved. But even as believers, we have to be very careful. Is our love, is our heart drawn away from God and His Word so much that we actually begin to call the very truths, the very principles, the commands, and the promises of God as something that we hate or that we make little priority of? that we give very little attention to, and we actually show a greater desire for that which is vain. Now we think of this, and you see in the King James, in your particular text, in your particular Bible, you may see the word vain in italicized print. So that was added there by the translators, the King James translators added that word vain on purpose for clarity, for understanding of what the psalmist is saying. The thoughts that are obviously being referred to here are vain thoughts. So what are these vain thoughts? Why would the King James translators insert the word vain there? Because it's clear that there is a way of thinking that is contrary to the law of God. And that kind of thinking we must hate. Think about some of the lies that are out there, the unholy thoughts, the doubts, and the accusations. Literally, this phrase, I hate vain thoughts, literally, it can refer to men who are waffling, doubting. It, it can actually refer to those who are half and half. Now, I like in my coffee, I like half and half. And if it's fat-free or if it's not fat-free, either way, I like a little half and half in my coffee. Now, McDonald's coffee, a medium needs about three to take off some of the McDonald's lack of quality coffee. But there are some good coffees, like Hufford's in the mall, a little half and half goes a long way because their coffee is really good. I think Hufford's is about to take over my top spot on my coffee list. But a little half and half, a mixture. What is ultimately this phrase speaking of? It's speaking of those who are skeptical, doubting, causing doubt, halting. First Kings 18.21 speaks to those who halt, who are doubting, questioning the word of God. This is speaking of those who are skeptical, maybe even mocking or scorning the Word of God, casting doubts on the Word of God. Think about some of the thoughts, the wrong ideas that are out there. Some vain thoughts are worthless, frivolous, silly. Some thoughts are just downright sinful. And sometimes it's a thinking pattern that is subtle, that is a little inconspicuous at first, 
Can I say sometimes that thought patterns are very cultural and they are sung and performed? And I'm not trying to condemn all forms of entertainment and social media and electronics and internet. I'm not trying to be condemning or be overly negative here. But often it is in the entertainment. It's in the artist who makes us feel good by a particular entertainment style or a particular entertainment action. It often takes artists and entertainers to get the public to accept the error that comes out of the classrooms and the pulpits and the other places that these ideas spring up. We know that the world, the flesh, and the devil, we know that there is a spirit of Antichrist in the world today. And some of these ideas popped up 30, 40 years ago in classrooms and worlds of academia and maybe just in some journal somewhere in some scholarly place. But then an artist, an entertainer, somebody with influence. Now we have influencers. TikTok, Instagram, I don't know, all the different influencers, but they're internet influencers. And isn't it interesting now? There are influencers affecting and influencing our culture and our children and our grandchildren and even us from all different points and angles. And now some of these bad ideas that used to just be in some scholarly journal that everybody would pretty much ignore except for some elites maybe somewhere, now they are in the mainstream they're on the screens, they're on the podcasts, they're in the various forms of entertainment, they're in the social media posts, they're tweeted or X'd out, however you say that now. In what was a easily recognizable error, oh, that's bad, that's, now it's become very mainstream and accepted and normal. Let me give you one that I heard this week that I thought was particularly awful Never heard before, but just goes to show you where our culture is going. I read this week of a condemnation of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and the missionaries who died taking the gospel to the Aka Indians. And because of the critical theory mood that our culture is in, that everything that's wrong with the world is because of different power plays, oppression and oppressors, and intersectionality, and critical theory, and critical queer theory, and critical social theory, and on and on it goes. Now, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot are receiving criticism for taking the gospel to the Aka Indians because they were spreading a form of Christian colonialism. Never heard that until this week. So how does that then get spun? We, me in particular... Us, as a local assembly, we are promoting a Christian colonialism by taking the gospel to the lost world. And if the culture is going one direction and we're going the other, then we are guilty of not being progressive. We are then guilty of Christian colonialism, trying to push our ideas. Can I just go a little further with this? And some are saying this. Some are saying your Eurocentric ideas, your patriarchal ideas. Hear the words? Do we not hear these? God the Father, patriarchal, 
misogynism. These are the vain thoughts that are getting spread in our culture today that are being twisted and turned to turn a culture against God and against his word, against biblical Christianity, so that the sharing of the gospel with pagan Indians who need to be saved is a form of oppression that is spreading American Christian colonialism. Bad ideas, vain thoughts. They're out there, aren't they? We have to be on guard. 2 Corinthians 10.5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We are in a dangerous world with so many vain thoughts all around us. In 1 Corinthians 13, in verse number 5, we are told that love thinketh no evil. Now, there is obviously the aspect of sin, not having sinful thoughts, but also this wrong thinking that we can just outright condemn a person because they have offended us in some way and they are beyond forgiveness. When the Bible teaches us in the chapter on love that love thinketh no evil, there's a willingness to forgive. We're losing that in our culture. We're losing the ability to forgive one another, even within our churches, within biblical Christianity. We harbor grudges, wrong thinking, that we can't even think anything good of someone else. All we can think of is they're now the enemy. They've offended me, and now they have been written off. They have been canceled. They are toxic. And so, therefore, there is no way we can minister to them, reach them, help them. They certainly don't need the gospel because they have offended us. That kind of attitude is a result of wrong thinking. When 1 Corinthians 13.5 tells us that biblical love thinketh no evil, that can get into our marriages, can it? We begin to make lists of all the wrongs. Well, 35 years ago, when we were in our second week of marriage, you burnt the toast. I remember that. And it gets brought up. And then we begin to use superlatives like never and always. You always do that. You never. And then that just seems to get the barbs going. And then certain words get thrown out and all that goes on and on. And we dwell on the wrongs and the offenses and the negatives and the sinful thoughts. When Philippians 4 and verse number 8 tells us what to be dwelling on, what should be guarding our thoughts, what should be forming our thoughts, what should be focusing our thoughts. Philippians 4.8 says, What sort of things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report? We're to think on these things. How does that affect our entertainment? How does that affect the things that we listen to? How does that affect the kinds of podcasts, the types of counsel that we get, the people that are constantly speaking into our lives? I know I say it often, I don't want to be overly repetitive, but it's been so important for us as parents that our children be in an environment, be around people who will speak the truth into their lives. We can't eliminate every place. They went out to work at the grocery store and they heard words they had never heard before, red bumper stickers that they had never wanted to ever read. And they have had to come home and we've had to discuss these things. And we've had to do a lot of insulating because we can't isolate. We're in the world. We can't be, we're not supposed to be of the world. But we have to guard our minds. 
We have to dwell on that which is true, honest, just, pure, lovely, good reports. We have to set up those defenses in our minds so that we love God's word, which is obviously the ultimate defense, the word of God. So we need to dwell on the truth. We need to hear the word of God preached and preached faithfully. We need to be speaking the truth to one another and speaking the truth in love and singing unto one another in, lo- in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, melody, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. Church, where we speak the truth to one another, where our kids get taught the truth and kids for truth, and on and on we could go. We need the truth. We love God's law. We hate the vain thoughts, so we want the truth to be spoken to our lives and to the lives of our children and our grandchildren. So we guard our thoughts with the word of God. And then we see that God is our hiding place and our shield. We see hiding place. This is shelter. Psalm 32 in verse number 7. Psalm 32 in verse number 7. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Psalm 91 in verse number 1. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Isn't it great to know, isn't it good to know that our God is our hiding place, a shelter in the time of storms? We, we, we love a good place to hide when there's a storm. Our house Our second house in Indianapolis did not have any good places to hide when there was a storm. We were coming back from the east side of town. I think it was from visiting Kelly's parents, and we drove along 465 on the south side, and we saw some clouds, dark clouds and funnel-shaped clouds that uh, were a little bit on the scary side. The sky was turning various forms of yellow and black and green, and I don't know what all, and uh, we got home as quickly as we could, and we had checked our phones, or I forget how we found out, but there was literally a tornado that was touching down in Beach Grove right about the time that we were driving through on 465. And we went home, we got in this little closet. We didn't have a basement. We really didn't have any good room. It was the bathroom and the little closet, which was a pantry, which had a whole bunch of food in it, and we're all trying to get into this little... We were like, what are we going to do if there's ever a really bad storm, a really bad tornado, if we're really in that kind of a situation? We're not all going to fit in here. So it's eeny, meeny, miny, moe, right? (laughs) Whoever has to stay outside or has to stay in the living room or hide under the pillows. We're thankful for a shelter in a time of storm. We're thankful for a safe place. I don't know if anybody around here is building a bomb shelter. I don't know if anybody is going to that degree yet. I know somebody who uh, moved out into a... Uh, rural area in order to be able to build a bomb shelter. I'm not saying we have to go to that extreme. Um, There may be a day where we have to do that. I don't know. Uh, Maybe that's in somebody's plans. I'm not here to get into all that, but it's good to know that there is a shelter, a place to go. There was a building that was built during the Cold War. It was interesting in a documentary. I can't remember the name of the place, but it went several stories underground with concrete and all kinds of protections. So the most important people alive in the Cold War, you know, the politicians, the presidents, the senators, all those really important people, right? They could go to this bunker that was built deep down into the earth, so if there was a Russian nuclear missile that was flying across, at least 
the really important people, I'm sorry, I'm being a little facetious here, but at least the president and the senators and those people could get there into that deep bunker and they could survive the nuclear holocaust. It was an interesting documentary, and of course it was a top secret project that the government did not release until many years later. But uh, millions of dollars, of course, that was spent on this bunker. Has it ever been used? To my knowledge, I don't think it's ever been used. But millions of dollars, in case there was a nuclear holocaust, the really important people in our government could go there and hide. Well, we have a much better place than a bunker deep down in the earth to help us survive a nuclear holocaust. We have the God of the universe. We have a hiding place who is the shadow of the Almighty. Isn't that incredible to think that we can go to our God, who is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer? We see the word shield. We could go to several other passages. We don't have time tonight to do this, but the word for shield is also the, the word sometimes translated buckler. It's the little shield. It's not the big phalanx type of shield that goes from head to toe. It's the little shield that a soldier would hold in hand-to-hand combat to have to deal with the swords and the spears and whatever else was being thrown or, or sent that soldier's way to protect him. Our God is a shield. There are some hand-to-hand combat in spiritual warfare, isn't there? Don't we feel sometimes like we're in hand-to-hand combat? It's so up close and personal. We're in throes of temptation. We're in throes of spiritual battle. Sometimes it's in the wee hours of the night or the morning. Sometimes it's sitting in a hospital room or it's sitting in our bedroom or it's sitting in a quiet place, a lonely place. And we just have to go to the Lord, don't we? We have to put up a shield because there are all kinds of darts, fiery darts of the enemy that are being thrown our way. We're so thankful that the word of God is a shield. Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. We see again the emphasis on the word of God here being our hiding place. God himself, and obviously through his word, his promises to us that reflect his very character and his attributes. He is our hiding place and our shield. God's word brings us that hope. And then we can go to Psalm 18 and verse number 2. We know this verse well. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn. The word horn speaks of strength. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. He is the strength of my salvation. He is my stronghold. We are so privileged as children of God to be able to go to the Lord, to be our hiding place, to be our shield, to be our our rock, our fortress, our deliverer, our strength, the strength of our salvation, in our stronghold. We continue in this psalm. Thirdly, we see that God's word directs us away from the evildoers. God's word directs us away from the evildoers. Depart from me, ye evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. We avoid the temptations and the, temp- and the tempters as best we can with the Lord's help by his discernment. As he gives us discernment as we know his word and we apply his word and as evil makes an appearance, we avoid it and we are holding fast to that which is good and we're abhorring the evil 
We have to walk circumspectly. We have to walk with discernment to recognize the evil and those who practice it and be careful to avoid them and instead adhere ourselves to God's commandments. We go back again to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. How many times do we deliberately put ourselves in the seat of the scornful? How many times do we put ourselves in the way of the ungodly? When we don't have to. We, we all have to go out into a working world. We all have to go out into a world and live in grocery stores and places and We have to live our life and we have to be in a wicked world. But again, we have to go forth with discernment. We spent some time looking at this last week or maybe even Wednesday night. I won't go into uh, all of of the the details of this. But the, the fact that we must use God's word to develop discernment. To recognize the evil. To, as the... Uh, I believe it's in the, 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 the book of Ephesians, to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Walking circumspectly. Have you ever seen a cat walk across a shelf with lots of decorations, different pieces of uh, fragile decorations? And a cat will many times be able to walk circumspectly across that shelf and not knock anything off. That's... Walking circumspectly. We have to walk that way through this wicked world. I remember driving on a road kind of like this one that's up here on the screen. I think Kelly uh, lost about five years of her life as we were driving through Yosemite National Park with a 15-passenger van. There were about 10 of us on a family vacation, extended family vacation, and we were in Yosemite National Park, and I was driving this 15-passenger van. And the roads were hairpin turns. They were some places where there was hardly a guardrail. And I remember we were getting close to the top where you could look out across and see El Capitan and uh, uh, Half Dome. Beautiful. And you could look out over the Sierra Nevada. I mean, we were getting up close to that. And there was this really tight turn. And I'm driving this 15-passenger van. And I look ahead, and there's a tour bus a big coach tour bus making the, these turns. And I thought, ah, this is a piece of cake. I can do, if he can do that, I can, right? I mean, I did not think that thought. <laughs> I did think, well, okay, I'll survive. Because if that tour bus can survive with all those people, then surely I can survive. But I don't think that, I don't think Kelly had that great a confidence in me. As we were driving these mountains, and literally at times you could look over and you could see your life flash before your eyes. And we have to go through, in a sense, times in our life and areas that God puts us in where we're on some treacherous mountain roads and we have to stay away from the curb, away from the side. We stay close to the Lord. And God's word directs us, his way, as we looked at last week in verse 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Now, have you heard some people talk about well, Jesus ate with the publicans and sinners, so therefore I can, and they describe some sinful activity. You heard that before? Well, Jesus ate with the publicans and sinners, so therefore I can do this, I can do that. And, and I think that many times that's ripped out of context. Because when Jesus ate with the publicans and sinners, 
He sat down on a meal and he declared who he was. He revealed who he was and he called them to himself in saving faith. He wasn't participating in some sinful activity. He wasn't hanging out at the nightclub in the bar and then passing out gospel tracts. He wasn't involved in some sinful activity and then saying, well, all thanks to all men, as you've often heard probably as well. I've heard many a time growing up and going through Bible college and even since then in the ministry. And there's a very pragmatic philosophy that's in churches today. And whatever works, whatever brings the people in, and this idea that if it makes the people happy, if it entertains them, if it makes them feel comfortable in church, then let's do it. This very pragmatic philosophy. It's very dangerous. No, we are to be very cautious. We're to operate our lives according to the word of God and have a greater desire to obey God's commands than to participate in the evil or to try to make the evil think that they can continue in their evil but call themselves Christian. Can I say that again? Sometimes the danger in going through life and in our tendency to compromise, it's to say to the evil, oh, you can continue to participate in that, but we will still call you a Christian. So when a particular pastor in the Atlanta area has a conference in about a month from now, and he puts gay men in a same-sex union, I hesitate to use the word marriage because it's not a true marriage. So when in about a month from now, when this very prominent pastor, well-known, well-recognized, thousands of members in his church, probably tens of thousands who attend him or follow him, in that conference, I understand the desire to be compassionate and to help those who are affected by the sins of homosexuality and parents whose children are affected by the sins of homosexuality and transgenderism. I understand the need for compassion. Those, those individuals need the Lord. Parents who are affected by that, they need compassion. Um, they need the, the support of God and his word. But to bring a LGBT community into your church and basically pat them on the back and say, you can come here and call yourselves a Christian but you can continue in your lifestyle. And as a matter of fact, make some of the prominent speakers gay men in a same-sex union and highlight them as a monogamous relationship, so therefore it is okay. This is how you can practice the homosexual lifestyle in a safe way. That's dangerous. That's not allowing God's word to direct our paths That's a church and a pastor who is leading his church over a cliff. That that is going to tumble and fall into chaos. He's abandoning, sadly, he's abandoning biblical Christianity altogether. So then we come to verses 116 and 117. And just quickly here tonight, we see that God sustains us with his word. It's very similar to what we looked at earlier in verse 114. But we see 
that God's word upholds us. Uphold me according unto thy word that I may live and let me not be ashamed of my hope. Hold thou me up and I shall be safe and I will have respect unto thy statutes continually. We see over and over in scripture and repeated here the fact that God upholds us, that God sustains us, that he holds us up. When I was doing some study, it was interesting. I used the picture of pillars because they often are support beams, of course. But in doing some research and study for tonight's message, I found that there's the five pillars of wisdom, the six pillars of peak performance, the essential pillars of leadership, four pillars of meaning, three pillars of meditation, seven kingdom pillars to build upon, and the six pillars of success. And that wasn't all the pillars. There were a lot more pillars than that. But aren't you glad that the Word of God is not just a self-help manual? Let's go to the five pillars of wisdom. And then we'll go to the New Testament and find the six pillars of peak performance. And while we're there in the New Testament, maybe we can find the chapter on the three pillars of meditation. Aren't you glad that the Bible is not just a manual with six steps to success and eight steps to and 40 days of? Aren't you glad that the Bible is about a relationship with Jesus Christ? And it tells the story of Jesus Christ with the theme of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, restoration. And the whole accounts, historical, scientific, all the narratives, all the principles, all of the didactic passages, it's all about Jesus Christ and how God desires to have a relationship with us through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose again. So thankful for the Bible who upholds us and sustains us, holds us up. And then we see at the end here, as we come to a close of this stanza, Thou hast trodden down all them that err from thy statutes, for their deceit is falsehood. Thou puttest away all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore I love thy testimonies. My flesh trembleth for fear of thee, and I am afraid of thy judgments. We see that God will punish the wicked, that justice will be served. This is a promise from God's word. As bad as the world is getting around us, as much as we must continue to stand for what is right and uphold the truth and be faithful to the word of God, we can rest in the fact that there is going to be justice ultimately served. The wicked will not ultimately get away with their sin. If they don't turn from their sin and repent and come to Christ in saving faith, then they will die in their sin and suffer the penalty for it. Because they rejected Jesus Christ. And that is going to bring glory to God. I know that's a sobering thought. But that is part of the holiness and the justice of our God. And it should not lift us up in pride. But it should humble us. In great thanksgiving and gratitude for our salvation. Because if it weren't for the grace of God, so would we. Psalm 9 and verse 17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Isn't that a warning across the bow of America? As we push God away, there is a declaration in Psalm 9. It goes right along with these verses in Psalm 119. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. There were other passages if we had time to go to, we would go to them. And then we finish with verse 120. 
We see in verse 120, my flesh trembleth for fear of thee. This word trembles literally means to bristle, to make one's hair stand on end. You ever been scared out of your mind? You ever had a circumstance where you were in a dark place? Maybe you, maybe you did, do I dare say it, a haunted house somewhere? Um, I'm, I don't like haunted houses. I did go to a couple as a teenager. Um, I know they're going to be popping up around town. But just in general, someplace, somewhere where you have been scared, somebody snuck up on you, something happened, a, something broke or dropped or a shot went off or whatever, and it scared you, and you had that, those, that I'm, I don't know what to say other than that, goosebumps <laughs> up and down your, your body and that, just that fear. That's the word tremble. My, tre- my flesh trembleth for fear of thee, and I am afraid of thy judgments. Now, let's be careful here and not go too far with this, because it's also saying, for fear of thee, I am afraid of thy judgments. And that word speaks of a holy dread or terror and references reverence and awe. So, there is a literal trembling at the judgment of God, especially for those who don't know him as their savior and will be judged for their sin at the judgment day. And those who are not found, whose names are not found written in the book of life shall be cast into the lake of fire, the great white throne judgment. That's a particular, particular fear or dread or terror or trembling that should drive any person to the savior, to repentance and faith. But in terms of us as believers, yes, we should fear our God in the right way, that we do not do those things that displease him, that bring chastening. We avoid those things, but we also have a reverence and an awe and a love for him, that we want to do those things that please him. I wish we had time to go to all of these passages, but we know the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, we looked at that recently. And how the whole duty of man, as Solomon comes down to the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes, he talks about the whole duty of man is to fear God and to keep his commandments. We fear him in the right sense of the word, that we want to do what pleases him, we don't want to do what displeases him. I'm thankful for my dad, I love my dad, I look forward to seeing him in glory one day. But I tell you what, growing up, I had a fear of my dad. I knew when that belt came off that I was going to get a licking. But I also knew my dad loved me. Now, he wasn't the most expressive. We weren't big huggers and kissers and all that touchy-feely stuff. Um, I've, come, I've come a long way. I'm, I'm okay with hugs. I'm not so sure about the holy kiss. But I've come a long way with physical affection. It just wasn't a big part of our home. But I knew my dad loved me. I feared him. But I also knew he loved me. I had a respect for him that I didn't want to cross him. But I also knew my dad loved me very much. And he would go out of his way and he would sacrifice. And he would give and he would travel down. And all those days and those special memories, as we sat in our living room in one of his final weeks, and I know it sounds silly, but we sit and we watch a baseball game. And we have a chance to talk. It's the last good, regular conversation that I had with my dad. 
But even though he slipped into eternity just a few weeks later, and I never had another real solid conversation because the cancer had taken over his body. But that conversation is always special to me because I knew my dad loved me, even down to the very end, even in those final days. And isn't it good to know we have a Heavenly Father that loves us? Oh, we fear Him. We don't want to displease Him. But we love Him. And He loves us with an everlasting love. And it shows each and every day of our lives with His grace and His mercy that we don't deserve. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your love for us. Thank You, Lord, for these truths that draw our hearts to You. That, Lord, we desire so much to please You to obey your commands and to experience your blessings, your favor. But Lord, as we sing tonight, whatever trophies that you allow us by your grace to earn, we turn around and we cast them at your feet in worship and praise and thanksgiving for what you have done for us and what you have allowed us to do by only your strength and by the old rugged cross we sing this so beautifully just a few moments ago and Derek will come and lead us in just one stanza and then we'll prepare for the Lord's table tonight 310 the old rugged cross verse 3 of 310 